I'm going to dive in. We can dive in. Let's dive in. Hey, welcome everybody to Draft Politics. It's episode 14. I'm EJ. With me always is Steve. Hey, everybody. How you doing? Uh, Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about this week, particularly on the national side. But we got a few scraps of uh, some local stuff, too. We'll get to in the next podcast. But for now, let's talk about national and uh, the end of some things. Yeah, it's almost starting with an in-memoriam session here. Um, So first, H. Ross Perot uh, passed away since our last podcast. Uh, Really the first in my lifetime third-party candidate to really make waves. Really a huge personality. Uh, Almost a caricature. uh, Giant sucking sound, if you recall, from those debates. Yes. H. Ross Perot. Did you vote for him? I did vote for him. Yeah, I know. That gives you a sense of the weird political journey I've been on. But, uh, yeah, no, I did vote for him uh, the first time. So Yeah, Texas oil man. That was my first presidential uh, election. Yeah. Thought everything was broken. Used his own his own money to buy a whole bunch of time on TV, uh, to to kind of push his message forward. Big on charts and graphs. If you yeah, remember. he really needed the power. I think if he'd come along later with PowerPoint, he might be president right now. Yeah, <laughs> or, yeah that is. That <laughs> well, is true. except he's dead. He yeah, wouldn't well, be president other than right that part. Now, but yes, and you know, one of the things that I, I've found is that I've asked people about him, and what they remember actually is the Saturday Night Live sketches with Dana Carvey yes. as H. Ross Perot and uh, his vice presidential candidate, Admiral Stockdale. You know, I, I, like What they remember is, is the character. What am I doing yeah, here? Exactly. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> and that tells you what an impact he had personality-wise, right? And, and maybe if you kind of go all the way back and say, who was the first presidential candidate that ran on personality, uh, on outsized personality, and it was Ross Perot. I mean, well, I don't know he's the first, but first one I remember. Yeah. Let's put it that way. And first that's really all that matters. Right. Because history, <laughs> whatever. History. Uh, next on the list, former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. Yes. And, you know, I remember back when he was getting up there in age and uh, there was concern that he wasn't going to make it through uh, George Bush's uh, administration and George W. Bush, I should be clear. Um, you know, hang on, Stevens, hang on was a mm-hmm. little song people had going, and he he hung on and uh, for a few years more it looks like, and yeah, so he's he's hey, gone. But passed away this week yeah. at ninety nine. I, I mean, uh, he it's was a, it's a good life. Yeah, a good life. Uh, r- led the sort of liberal wing of the Supreme Court for a long time, so uh, he'll be missed. Some great opinions, uh, some great leadership on the court, and uh, then maybe slightly happier. In memoriam, the citizenship question is officially dead. Yes, dead can't be revived. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that more later. But uh, yeah, we're we're glad to see that that finally got killed, and we shouldn't have that affecting the census. So that's that's really good news. Well, it's not going to be on the census. Let's not go so far as to say it's not going to affect it. Well, the we'll question see. won't we'll be see. on the census. The question will not be there though. Yes. So uh, again, moving on, sort of from. The in memoriam. So, last weekend you were at Netroots Nation, right? Yes. And you're a founding. Yes, member I of helped Netroots found Nation. it. Yep. I ran registration the first couple of years. I now do photography for it. I'm not 
involved in organizing it in any way, shape, or form, so don't hold me accountable for anything that goes on there. But, you know, I'm there. I've got, a, you know, a lot. I'm pretty familiar with it, and uh, it was a really good year this year. We had a big attendance of 3,900 people, which is by far the most they've had. It's probably about 1,000 more than they've had in past, uh, past years. Uh, and can you just tell us just a bit about you know, what Networks Nation is and why everybody gets together. Sure thing. So it came out of the sort of technological revolution that, you know, turned into social media and all of that. Um, it originally started as bloggers um, and uh, the Daily Coast website is where it all came out of. So when it was founded, it was called Yearly Coast. Um, and then the name was changed to kind of make it clear that it was a separate entity and it wasn't, you know, being run by Marcos Melitzas. Um and so, yeah, so it's, it's evolved over the years. It's gone from being much more technologically focused to being a broader activist conference. Yep. Um, it's I mean, I saw some of the panels were certainly non-technology yes, focused. Yes, yes. And it's also been, it's become much more diverse over time. Um, that's been, that was always sort of one of the pain points of it was that it was a, you know, the first year it was a very, very, very white conference. And um, now it's been far broader, much, many more women. They also make a point of, having, uh, you know, the people who are on the panels or whatever, they always make a point of making sure that there are, it's not just all white men on a panel. Um, and so over time they've done that and it's really broadened it. And this year it was actually kind of stark, like how much different it was this year compared to previous years and really a great thing to see. Awesome. Um, so what kind of attention does it get sort of nationally sort of in terms of politicos, candidates? You know, it's interesting because I think in past years it, when they had more of a focus on sort of big political gets, like it was like, let's who, you know, like they've had Bill Clinton speak there. They had Joe Biden speak there. Like when it was more of the focus, I think they got more media attention than they do now typically. But this year we had um, four of the presidential contenders there. We had Elizabeth Warren. We had uh, Julian Castro, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and uh, Jay Inslee there. And uh, yeah, it was good to see them all come out. Warren was clearly the sort of, favored person with the oh audience. yeah the headliner there um she did get one uh one little bit of protest there around immigration and uh you know they she got she got to make her an get her answer out to the question that was being asked and so it all worked out pretty well um that's sort of one of the historical things about netroots nation is we tend to get a lot of people protesting at our events um you know notoriously a couple years ago um black lives matter took kind of took the microphone from uh sanders and he didn't react well to it, and uh, you know that right. uh, you know that I kind of hurt that. him with a lot of activists. I think at that point, and uh, yeah, so it's it's definitely been an interesting thing to see evolve over time. Um, <coughs> this Anything year, that really stood out for you? I mean, like, yeah. Um, so there was two two things that stood out to me. One was there was a panel that was talking about sort of like the future, the progressive movement, and all that. And there was a great conversation between Jeff Merkley and. Um, uh, Pramila Jayapal. Oh, right. And, um, and in that conversation, they were talking about the what had happened in terms of passing the legislation that funded the uh, border detention facilities, uh, that, you know, sure, added yeah. the additional emergency funding for those, um, or as I call them, concentration camps. But um, the funding for that was passed, and what apparently happened was the Senate thought that the House was going to go to committee and so to the to the conference committee where they yeah, negotiate a final right. bill. So they all felt like they could just vote however they wanted to and didn't really feel like they had to like hold the line. Well, once a bunch of the Democrats in the Senate voted for it, then that a bunch of the more moderates in the oh, House said, oh, well, they voted for it. We don't want to be left holding the bag. And so we want to vote for it. 
And so that ended up, and so it was basically this big miscommunication between the House and the Senate about how that should all play out. So pretty bad strategy all around there. And it was, it was interesting to sort of get that insight into yeah. how Hashtag that actually happened. Fail. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was ugly. Um, the other thing that was really interesting was there was a panel that was with Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, and uh, Deb Haaland. And uh, it was just amazing. And it, so they talked a lot about, you know, what was going on with Trump and his racism and, you know, just an overall great panel, like really just powerful women who, I mean, if they, if they become the future leadership of the Democratic Party, we are in very good shape, Is you know. So, yeah, no, it was a great conference, like lots of good energy there. Uh, we went and did a, a protest against an ICE detention facility there, had a you know, couple, few thousand people turn out for that. So it was oh, really great. good. That is great. Um, and that's a, you know, sort of that last panel is a good segue to, I think, what's really dominated the news cycle since you know, last weekend were the go-back-where-you-came-from tweets yes. from Donald Trump. Yes. And I, I sort of want to start this by saying... There's nobody who read those tweets who changed their opinion about whether or not Donald Trump is a racist. Right. And I, I don't want this podcast about being fired up and getting people, like, angry. I don't want you to leave this podcast being angry because of something that somebody says that you know There's so many say. other ways to be made angry on yeah, the Internet. so <laughs> many other ways. So many other ways. But I, I think it is, you know... Look, on their surface, that is a common racist trope. It's it's so it's common. even in like the Federal Register, right? As an official, like this is a sign of racism if you have a you know a problem with an employee or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You cannot do this. So, yeah. I don't know. Mike Pence is probably looking at that right now, going, "I don't know. Do I file a complaint? He didn't right? tell me to go home, but right? My boss may be crossing the line here. Um, I, but." You know, I think we, everybody interprets that the same way. There's no gray area amongst people when they're talking well, amongst it, themselves. It gets into how racism continues is that Trump will say he's not racist and he won't use the N-word or that, at least not in public. I'm sure he does in private. but um, And he will say things that are clearly using racist language that the racist will know is racist language and Everybody who like everybody knows it's racist, but but there's still this just hint of plausible deniability. We can say, well, no, that wasn't racist. I meant they should go back where they came from. Like, well, I think the problem the problem with that, and the, the reason I don't think that really holds water, is because they're all Americans, right? Like three of oh, the yeah. four people he was directing that at were yeah. born in the United States. Yeah, which uh, is which is how you know it's racist, is because it's like right. if that you know if they are white people, is he saying go back where they came from? No. People would be like, wait, what do you mean? I don't yeah, understand this. It's the this. exact same logic as when he was questioning Obama's citizenship. It's, oh, well, he's a black guy with a funny name, so he must not be from here. Right. Now, again, the other sigh-inducing thing this week, continuing from last week's theme, was, you know, it's notable that the only person in the list of people he was kind of attacking who was not born in the United States Omar has been a citizen longer than his wife. Right. So. <laughs> so. And, uh, yeah, again, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody listening yeah, to this are podcast. You, are you suggesting that Donald Trump is a hypocrite? Huh. 
No, I, I wouldn't suggest that. There's no point. Uh, right. Well, yes. Why, why waste your energy? It's so clear. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, the fallout from that is what's really interesting to me is seeing, you know, the different ways that people have, have reacted, um, you know, yeah. especially sort of, you know, in Congress. What do we do now? So how do we react? How do we retweet or tweet or subtweet or you know, respond to that and then actually on the floor. So how do you think that kind of fell out in, in your <laughs> it's mind? It's just, uh, it's, such a, it's such an absurdity. So yeah, theater so of the go, absurd. Go, so first of all, this vote is to condemn Donald Trump for his, for his racist tweets. It's something that has no actual teeth to it. It's just right. saying, hey, that's a bad thing. You shouldn't it's have done it. It's a resolution. And fine. And, and the vote went down about as you'd expect, where all the Democrats voted for it and Four Republicans voted for it. I'll get to that in a second. But um, before we even got to the vote, there was a whole sort of meltdown around what Pelosi said in the lead up to it, because she said that Trump was racist. And apparently under the obscure parliamentary rules from like the 1800s. Oh yeah. Thanks, Thomas Jefferson. Thanks, Thomas Jefferson, that you can't apparently say that the president is racist, as it turns out that the slave owner back in the 1800s didn't really like that, I guess. So, so there was a whole mess around that. They finally get to the vote, though. What's interesting to me is who of the Republicans voted in favor of this. So you've got Will Hurd of Texas. You're like, Which oh, is a great name for a politician, right. In Texas, let's right. just let's just say that, like, hey, man, good choice of name, right? Um, and so it's like, oh, well, why would he have voted for it? Oh, because 68% of his yeah. district is Latinx. So yeah, he's outside of San Antonio. I think. Yeah. So like. Okay, so that's why he might be okay with that. And then Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, similar thing, 46% black, 15% Latinx. Um, Susan Brooks of Indiana, 94% white. And I'm like, oh, well, good for her. Oh, she's not running. Oh, well, okay then. So she's just worried about her next job. Um, Fred Upton of Michigan, also 82% white, who's apparently facing a very tough election uh, against a, a, a gay man, John Hoadley. Um, so he's got to sort of balance out, you know, hey, I'm not as anti, you know, as, I'm not as much ba- of a bigot ba- as, as you might think I was. Something. <laughs> so nobody, nobody from the Republican side made any kind of moral stand on this, which doesn't surprise me in the no. slightest. And, but and it does sadden me again. Yeah. And to let you know, so because I think it's important to understand where people come from. So Fred Upton in Michigan is sort of in the very, very southwest corner of Michigan. So if you're driving, say, from Detroit to Kalamazoo or Battle Creek, or maybe you're driving up to see Justin Amash, who also voted for it but not a Republican, right? you drive through that congressional district. So that yeah. runs from the border of Indiana up to Holland, Michigan. Um, so, you know, that includes places like Benton Harbor, uh, St. Joseph's. St. Joseph's kind of a vacation community a little bit. Benton Harbor has long had kind of issues of one sort or another. Um, Kalamazoo is in there. So he is clearly somebody who's probably looking over his shoulder at oh, for sure. changing and demographics. Yeah, and his district is a Republican plus four district. Like, it's not a big margin of error for him right there. And, no. you know, so if we've got a, an election that's wave you know, going strongly against Trump, he doesn't want to be on the wrong end of that. So, and you know, I'll, I'll say something about 
this whole thing is that, first of all, not surprising but still disappointing that so few Republicans kind of came out and said, like, no, you just can't say this. I mean, because in the past, Donald Trump would say something. You know, you think about Charlottesville when he's like, plenty of good Nazis. Like, well, no. <laughs> right? And people would right. say, even Republicans would say, look, well, he didn't mean it that way. Or really, the president needs to say things in a different way. Like, they would at least push back gently. But just zero pushback yeah. is, is disappointing slash not surprising yeah, and his poll numbers actually have been going up through this. Now, granted, you know, we're talking... For Republicans. For, amongst Republicans, yes. excuse me, yes. Yeah, you know, and of course we're talking, you know, a percentage here or there. It's not, you know, he's no. not, like, coming out of the, the, the 40s at this point. But, um, you know, I think it's... Much it, like his opinions, right? not coming out of the 40s. It's <laughs> true, true. Um, you know, and I think it's... This is what we can expect through the election. It's going to so. be Trump believes and it seems rightly so that he is empowered by being racist and xenophobic and pushing those buttons and you know striking fear in the hearts of, of republicans that you know too many brown people are going to be coming in and ruining everything and so you know this is what we're going to see and you know this is just sort of an early taste of it granted we've been tasting it far too much for since he's been elected but yeah yeah it's not i wish it were a taste could yes. deal with the taste, but it feels more like a drinking from the fire hose. Of good, good thing I have a beer to wash that taste yeah, down. Yeah, me too. Me too. God, I love this beer. That led to Al Green uh, not wanting to stay together. Representative <laughs> Al Green filing our articles of impeachment and really pushing on their being a vote. Yeah, about something, right? And, and, and so yeah, and there's a history of him. He's he's pushed for this before. In uh, when the Republicans controlled the House, he did it twice. Um, he did what they call a privileged. Uh, it was a privileged motion, whatever yeah. I forget what it was called. Um, but basically, he gets they have to vote on it within two days, or they can table it if they do that. Um, and so this came up again. His impeachment articles didn't talk about Russia or obstruction of justice or anything. It was purely about Trump's racist behavior. And so that went up for vote th this afternoon, in fact, and uh, lost. But like there were like ninety votes and ninety-ish votes in favor of it. Yeah. Well, it was a tabling motion. So yes. So uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, the Republican uh, minority leader, put forth a tabling motion, and that tabling motion passed 332 to 95. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it isn't, I don't know who, I didn't get the who voted for it, who didn't vote yeah. for it, but clearly it's not even close. Um, you know, and how does that compare to a vote on, you know, obstruction of justice or whatever? You know, we, we don't know. Yeah. And it's. It's this kind of thing where, on one hand, I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm glad that we're pushing on this. I'm glad that this is coming up. Um, but I'd much rather it be a strategic play, right? I'd much rather people say, now's the time. We have this evidence. 
let's do it as a block. Yeah. Let's, as a Democratic Party, decide that this is going to happen. And I know there are differing opinions about Nancy Pelosi. Pregnant pause. And, and that's got to factor into this. Uh, but... You know, I think a lot of this comes down to where is the caucus at more broadly. And, you know, obviously there are, you know, the squad and, and there's, a, there's a strong progressive chunk of the House that is on board with impeachment, given what we have right now. I think there's probably some who are hoping that they can get something out of Mueller's testimony that's coming up to really sort of cement it in the minds of the American public that this is something we should move forward with. Yeah. Uh, so. Wait, can we pause just for a second about sort of the squad as as a thing? I, and I'm I'm really interested to get your opinion about this, and we haven't talked about it at all. Um, so, as I usually do when I'm interested in getting somebody's opinion, I give my opinion first. So that's always a good way to do it. Yeah, you know, it's a very open and honest, a very Pelosi way to get an opinion <laughs> from somebody. Right. I feel like this whole naming of a group of people who are, look, we're we talking about four representatives who are doing amazing things, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, but they're not a team, right? Like, they, they are in the Venn, in my mind, in the Venn diagram of, of Congress, they are overlapping in very progressive things like Medicare for all and free college. And, you know, so they, they share some beliefs and then that, that maybe fifth circle is they're good at social media. Well, they also do actually work together. I mean, like they, they're like, they do coordinate with each other as a team. It's not like they're just like four people kind of doing their own things that happen to sort of align. Yes. And I'll, I'll grant so, you that, yeah. but at the same time, they put themselves up as a target, and it makes it seem like more of the caucus doesn't agree with them at, at all. So there aren't four people in the Democratic caucus who want Medicare for all. There are 150 people in the Democratic caucus who want for Medicare sure. for all. Um, similarly, with other progressive ideas, it's not just those four amazing women who are pushing these things forward. But it's opened up a narrative that I think is detrimental to the party, which is it's the squad against Pelosi. And so, again, because people who don't like Nancy Pelosi don't use her first name, you can see this in a Fox News graphic like the rebel, you know, socialist yeah, squad but I mean, okay, against. but this thing, like, whatever, I don't even pay attention to what Fox News is going to say about literally any of this, because they're going to just make shit up, and they're going to, you know, distort everything to their own advantage. It doesn't really matter in terms of the actual politics of any of this stuff and what gets done. Um, to my mind, they represent, they represent a lot of people who haven't been well represented by our government for uh, a long time. Uh, and that is what granted. they're trying to speak to. And so they are for people, but, you know, we talk, you know, and we've both worked in, in elections. And, you know, inevitably what you do is you get, here is your system, your database where you're tracking who are the people who are going to vote for you and who, don't, who aren't, and you have your likely voters. And you have everybody as a registered voter, and you yep. see how often they voted, and more often than not you're targeting the people who 
are regular voters because you know they're more likely to show up. And I think that sort of we have this system that's reinforcing itself and leading to, hey, we're only appealing with our messages to the people who we know show up regularly. They're pushing for the people who aren't showing up regularly because the system hasn't given them a reason to do so. Or maybe they've shown up in a way that's not opportune for us. Yeah. Right? Um, Like, to give you a sense of it, like, there was a study I heard. I don't remember the details of it. But basically, they they looked at voters and uh, who received Medicaid. And they noticed that people who received Medicaid had a lower voter turnout than other people. And you're like, okay, well, maybe because they're poor, they have a little more trouble getting to the polls. No, the reason why is because of Medicaid. It's because their experience of government through Medicaid was so terrible, like all the bureaucracy and the hoops they had to go through, that they showed up less to vote. And so I feel like the squad isn't, I mean, yes, they're playing, there's this whole thing talking about the squad versus Pelosi. I think they work better when they're working together, but I think that they're going to unapologetically push for we need to represent these people who have not been represented. Again, I am all yeah, for that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, my, my concern is that anything that gives, especially Donald Trump, some fodder to control the news cycle, to drive wedges, which he's very good at. I, I, I dislike slash detest him in many ways, but... The Donald Trump apparatus is very good at finding issues and exploiting them. Now, they they messed up, he says, censoring himself uh, last weekend, right? He could have exploited that whole thing better. Now, his, his tweets about his racist tweets brought Nancy Pelosi and those, those four women together. Yes. And overshadowed any debate that they would have, but it should highlight to us that there was a an exploitable debate that they did not exploit well. Well, and I th- I think what we're seeing play out is it's really about the the racial dynamics of the party politics that we have, and so what we've had is Republicans focusing more and more strictly on. I mean, their their prime demographic is white male Christian voters. And they've focused more and more on that to the exclusion of everything else. And just getting that part of things out to the polls every single time. And Trump's approach to things is about energizing those people. It's about bringing up racism and, and fear of the other and focusing on that. And what we have on the Democratic yeah. side is more of a tension between... People who are Democratic voters who are possibly uh, that that racial message appeals to them in a way, if not as strongly as it does with Republicans, and the the voters, the 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 Latinx, the black voters who are a core part of the Democratic Party and are becoming more of the Democratic Party. And so there's a shift towards them as the power base in the party that's been slowly happening. And I feel like we're on a cusp of that right yeah. now, and that's why there's this is such a mess. It, it, and maybe it's a good point to maybe it's a good place to put a pin in that. Yeah. For when we talk about sort of circus 2020. Yes. Right? Because I think some of those same trends are playing out in 
polls and fundraising for the candidates that we've got for the Democratic primary. So, yeah. So, uh, other things going on. Uh, A way that Trump has found to undermine our government is rather than simply eliminating uh, an office of the government or firing everybody there, he simply just moves them to Kansas. Um, The USDA Research Agency has been in D.C. for the longest time, and although they're the USDA, you would think, you know, maybe they are farm-related. These people aren't doing that kind of work. They're actually doing, like, economics research and things like that, very Uh, specialized research. uh, They also keep track of uh, dogs when they move overseas. Mm. Very important. Small piece of trivia. Personal experience. Yes. You have to go through the USDA if you're going to move your dog to Europe. Um, But anyhow, (laughs) so what they did was they basically decided to move the entire office to Kansas. Well, obviously... All of those people aren't going to want to move to Kansas. They've got family and whatever else in, in D.C. So, you know, and it, it also fundamentally cripples the agency because if you're not in D.C., it's not like you can just, like, go across the street to a meeting. You have to, like, actually travel there, and it's going to make you more out of the loop of what's going on. So just one of those little subtle ways that Trump sabotages things. I mean, I've got to say, don't like it, but sort of have a tip the hat to that. That is... It's it feels a little Cheney-esque to me. Like, yeah, I feel yeah. like, you know. Like, there's no way Donald Trump came up with that. No, he uh, did Unless no, no, he no, was no, just no, saying, no. like, just move him to Kansas. Like, No, he managed to find just the right nefarious person yeah. to, to do it. So whoever did that, Stephen Miller, good job. I, uh, that's a, a clever way to destroy the government in a new way, opposed to, as opposed to the other way, which is we're just not going to appoint anybody to lead an organization. Right, right. That's that's probably a topic for a different a different day. Yes. Um, but we've got some good contempt votes coming up, right? Well, they passed. Oh, so, they passed. Yeah, okay, so, yeah, so, yeah, everybody's so we had in written this down. We did our outline earlier today, and uh, since then we found out that uh, both Barr and uh, Wilbur Ross have been found in criminal contempt by the House, which means, well, Nothing. theoretically it means the DOJ would investigate them, but, you know, that's really not going to happen. So We'll see what happens when the DOJ tries to approve that through uh, bars off. Right. I'm sure it, I'm sure it'll sign off on it'll it. Be, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Um, it'll be fine. What I am curious about is what happens if Trump loses the election. Does the next president, does their DOJ follow up on those charges? I don't know how that works, honestly, because it doesn't usually happen. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if there's a statute of limitations. I guess I would say just personally that I hope they don't. Is because what? I hope they do not. Because these charges are definitely they're criminal charges that stem from a political debate. So Well, it's it's William Barr ignoring a subpoena from I, the I, House. So I get you. It is I get a crime. You. He's ignoring it because they're Democrats. It's a political debate. He's still committing a crime. I'm not not debating that. I mean, I I think what will probably happen is if Democrats have control of the House and the Senate and the presidency, the odds of him being investigated are much lower. If they don't have control of the Senate, then they don't like the whole people's business thing is sort of off the table because nothing's going to get done. So you may as well start digging in. You know what? We can't actually solve any of these problems, so let's go back and yeah. solve some of the old ones. You know, or maybe they, they do some leverage and say, hey, if you get give us the votes that we need to pass this legislation, we'll let that stuff slide and we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll pardon them or whatever in exchange for, 
Yeah, because Mitch McConnell cares about William Barr and Wilbur Ross. Well, what does William Barr have on, on McConnell? Who knows? <laughs> I saw a headline this week that said, the bar could not be lower. Oh. And I was like, that is a good and very bad pun yes. at the same time. Good and very bad. Can we talk about the person that like, I think I may hate the most in Congress outside oh. of Mitch McConnell? Oh, please. Because this is... I, yeah, I Mitch mean, McConnell is kind of in his I own mean, he's, field. Yeah, like, he's, he's all, I, I mean, it's I... It's like I Meryl Streep always wins like the best, the best yeah, actress. Yeah, yeah. Like, you just don't compare to her. Like, no, okay, no, no, you move on. Yeah. It's just, it's a given, given, given. Yeah. Rand Paul. Oh, yeah. I mean, Rand Paul. <laughs> this guy. What, I, what fascinates me about him is he always has... He gives this impression of having principle... And yet, very much not having principles. Right. <laughs> like, oh, I'm a libertarian, and these are these values I stand for. Okay, but not really. Yeah, I know. Like, he, uh, he is the definition of talks to talk and just refuses to walk any walk. Yeah. Unless it's walking. Well, anyway. He, so, so this week, he decided to vote against and block that 9-11 first responders and vi- victims compensation fund extension. Because, hey, as a libertarian, the government really should be careful with how we spend our money. He also voted for the Republican tax cuts that were just a giant hole in the deficit. Yeah. Trillion dollars tax cuts, that's fine. But, hey, you know, shrinking government, it's all consistent. So, hey, it's fine. It's, and, of course, the, the side note to this, and this kind of takes us into the international world, is that this week he also kind of put himself forward. While playing golf with President Trump, which is a great place to talk to President Trump because that's where he spends most of his time. Right. To say, I can solve the Iran crisis. Let me talk to the Iranians directly. I, I, I'm certain the way to solve the Iran crisis is just a, t- a Trump Tower in, in, in Iran and call it good. The Tehran just, just Trump Tower. The Tehran Trump Tower. Just buy them off and just call it done. They both start with T. That could that could work, right? That could work. Right. Uh, well, and this is kind of under the, you know, sort of the auspices of things cooling down. Donald Trump saying, "I'm trying to get him back to the table," with all these very kind of vague proposals that are just like the deal that Donald Trump said was the worst deal ever. Again, controlling the news cycle. So, I'd rather it be cooled off. You know, but, eh, you know, some interesting tie-ins there. Um, and I think other things internationally also pretty pretty calm, right? I Yeah, like all of the things that were seeming to boil over have been, you know, they're on a low simmer now. Like nothing's really going on with Iran. Nothing's really going on with North Korea. Nothing will go on with North Korea because nothing's going to happen there. Well, there's a lot of love there, you have to understand. So, Much love. Um, the trade war with China continues as it has. Um, we're putting sanctions on Turkey, apparently. Um, I don't know if you had more details on that. Well, so uh, Turkey bought some uh, so a missile system, an anti-missile defense system, from Russia. Oh, right, right, right. And yeah. so this is explicitly laid out in U.S. law as something that you can then impose sanctions for. So the U.S. has been pushing on... You know, like, buy the Patriot, buy the Patriot. The Patriot's great. You should buy the Patriot missile. How about that Patriot missile? And Turkey's like, nope, don't think so. We're going to buy the stuff from the Russians. So it means we can put in sanctions, and it probably means that we won't sell other things to the Turks, like, say, the F-35, right? Because if you have 
sort of Russian technology and American technology in one place at the same time, you can kind of test one out against another. And, you know, Turkey's always been kind of this weird, weird spot. Both geographically, it's very strategic. There are, there are you know, nuclear weapons from the United States in Turkey, but also you know, they, Erdogan especially, likes to play both sides here. Yeah. You know, he, he is definitely a strong man. This is not a democratic state. So, you know, he's got strong men to choose from. And I think he's just seeing how he can play them off against one yeah, another. Yeah, I mean, basically, it, it's interesting because you got a few dynamics there. It's like, okay, they're buying it from Russia. Well, Trump and Russia, you know, how that works. And then, but at the same time, you're not buying from Trump. Trump doesn't like it when you don't buy from Trump. you got to make a deal. So, yeah, you know, well, Trump doesn't own defense com- well, companies. Well, you know, and I don't even know how much Trump actually had to do with any of that. I mean, maybe somebody else down below was like, hey, we're going to throw sanctions on there. And he's like, whatever. Yeah, that's that is a fair, fair, fair point. So, anything else internationally? I mean, I think you know, not a busy, busy week or two, but no, I think we're uh, ready to move on to the circus 2020. Oh man, the circus, the circus. Election circus 2020. So. Honestly, not a lot going on now. I mean, like, I feel like we're kind of in this this lull between right. debates. Um, like we haven't the gotten quarter. The, yeah, we haven't gotten the new debate announcements yet. Like, no. who's going to be in the next debate and nope. what their ranks are and all that. Um, well, we've got two weeks until the debates. Yes, we uh, the filing deadline for fundraising was this last week. So we got all those numbers. Those were interesting. Yeah, so we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, the big news, of course, is we have yet another rich white guy <laughs> running for president because that's what we needed. So Tom Steyer, um, who is a, he's an activist. Um, he had talked about putting uh, a bunch of money into impeachment, like trying to help support impeachment, you know, the push for that. Uh, I guess. That's how it yeah, gets done. Yeah, I guess he decided that he'd rather just be president instead. So that's what he's doing. And he's committed $100 million of his own money to doing it, which, like, okay, okay dude. But, you know, I don't. he doesn't get in the—he's not going to be in the next debate. He doesn't get another debate unless he gets individual donors. Yeah. So I'm not sure what his plan is. I he, hope his plan is to just eventually leave. But Yeah, and we talked about this a little last week, and I— I mean, I really hope that he is he's coming to this as somebody who wants to further the discussion about impeachment, which, I, and by hope, I mean, I hope that he has a strategy and that it is not trying to be president. It's trying to further a topic that he yeah. cares about. Because, you know, there is also the, and I'm going to sound very spineless here probably you know that pragmatic discussion do we want to talk about impeachment should we should we force the candidates to do a hands up i want to impeach the president right um because i think that's what tom steyer would want to do in that strategy versus being coy about it and saying we want to move the country forward we'd rather defeat donald trump with votes yeah also but you know he 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 frustrates me in that I think his heart is in the right place, but he's still a little too wrapped up in his own ego that he wants to be like that, you know, focusing on impeachment, focusing on becoming president. Like if he would just take that money and invest in uh, 
fighting voter suppression efforts across the country, getting people registered to vote, getting people out to vote on election day. Like that money would go so far and he yeah. would have such an impact. And meh, it's not where he's spending his money. Like, you know, I don't, hey, you get to choose where you want to spend your money. And I get that. But it just disappoints me. Yeah, I, I would hope, again, that it's a message. He's trying to use this as a bully pulpit yeah. to further some messages. And um, and again, I have this strange optimism, right, that says he gets up there and he talks about some of these things, he gets some attention, and then he's like, I'm going to drop out of the race and take all this money and put it into those efforts that would really have a difference. Because his his existence in the campaign will not have a, a difference. How, how many beers have you had? <laughs> Never enough, sir. Never yes. enough. Um, so, yeah, I'll go from there. Uh, Biden has been attacking Medicare for all. Um, and, and it reads as he's making a play for older voters. And he's trying to put a lot of fear in the water about how when Medicare for all happens, that it's going to somehow screw up Medicare as you know it, which is total crap. In fact, it will expand Medicare in a lot of ways in terms of like dental care and uh, paying for um, uh, hearing aids and things like that. So, like, I mean, you know, based on the, the Bernie Sanders yeah. legislation we have, who knows what the final product will be. But, you know, it's it's really saddens me that he's sabotage or he's like attempting to sabotage that like if you want to like make an argument for why your approach would be better great but don't like undermine and lie about what what the possibilities are of that plan i mean he has to distinguish himself one way or another and i think this is one of those things i you know i kind of took some of those as being less about Medicare for all is bad and more about I want to take a more pragmatic kind of measured approach. Well, no, he was specifically saying Medicare for all is a risky approach. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was like, it was not like he's just like, but it, it was not a pragmatism argument. It was very much going after Medicare for all specifically. I, I would say most people, if you said, is that risky? They'd say, yeah, that sounds risky. To well, totally upend everything. Because but it it's already totally risky. well. All right, we get out. This this yeah. is a conversation for another day. But we'll pause the recording and stab each other and come back <laughs> once we've talked about <laughs> smash the beer points. bottles. Yeah. Oh wait, we don't have bottles. It's all draft. Oh it's well, all draft here at half. Guess Acre. we'll just have to keep talking then. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's a little disappointing again. But Biden has to do something, right? I mean, we look at the polls, and depending on which polls you look at and which state you look at, is Biden doing that well? Is he the front runner? What does front runner mean? I, I think the answer is not that great, and no. I mean, honestly, it's hard. To, like, I look at the different polls, and, you you know, if you look at, like, 538, they'll have the different ratings for different polls and whatever, and it's honestly all over the place. I mean, um, you have one where Buttigieg is, at, is the lead, which is seems crazy to me because he's— not, he's at the bottom of all the other ones. But, you know, it's like if you look at overall, though, there's basically five candidates who are in the running. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. anybody else, you can just kind of ignore them at this point, because unless somebody makes a major breakout during one of the debates or whatever, maybe Castro. Um, I, 
maybe, maybe there's some climate-related crisis that pushes Inslee to the front, but, like, you know, I mean, it is going to be very hot this week in Chicago, so maybe that is what pushes Inslee to victory. Uh, that'll give Inslee 0.001% right. more votes. So, you know, so I think it's like... We know who the competitors are. Now it's just a matter of watching this play out over the next few months and it, see what happens. It is. And, you know, I would say that uh, last week I talked about how the polling really shows, you know, we've got these top five and they're crushing everybody else, right? Like that's, that's everything. And now that we've seen the final numbers, that is echoed in, in the, the fundraising. So. Yes. Top five, Buttigieg, 25 million, Biden, 21 and a half, Warren, 19, Sanders, 18, Harris, 12. Next up is Booker with 4.5. Yeah. I mean, this is not even close. Yeah. Right? So. And so and actually, the one that I find most interesting is O'Rourke, who started off, you know, oh yeah. had a lot of grassroots, and it's just like he is totally tanked, um, which, you know, doesn't really surprise me given how he's done in debates. Um you know, but everybody else is like they've got enough money to sort of like you know keep making the occasional appearance in Iowa, but that's about it. There's not yeah. nothing to build the infrastructure, um, you know, get you know really get the good campaign staff on the ground, and so yeah. And and it, even if we kind of pull back from expenditures and just look at broad-based support, like I mean, there's a big difference there, and and I know you know they're getting money from different places. Warren is much more grassroots than you know biden who's kind of going the clinton route and you know i think one of the things that i saw was you know, biden had the highest percentage of donors who had maxed out so in the in the primary it's like 28 something 2800 dollars yeah. not 28,000, 2800 and everybody else's you know sort of average donations were much lower so they've still got room to grow so that's the other thing when you're looking at uh, when you're looking at a campaign and you're saying, where am I getting my money from? It's not just about the donor pool that you haven't reached out to, but the people you can reach back out to because they're actually your most likely donors. Right. So if somebody's already capped out, you've got to find new people. Well, and I think that's an advantage to the, the more grassroots approach to things is if you get you know, a thousand people donating $10 versus 10 people donating $1,000. You can go and go back to the well three times for those yeah. 10, you know, those 10 people. Whereas those $10 donors every month, you can keep going back to those same people and keep bringing that money in. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. You know, it definitely gives you some, you know, sustains you. And, you know, it's going to be interesting because Warren and Sanders both hit a similar political demographic. They both have similar fundraising strategies. They're both going to be consistently in this. There's no way. I get no impression that either one of them is going to drop out anytime soon. And so you can yeah. expect that they're going to both be in it through the convention and, you know, we'll see how it all plays out. Yeah, maybe. And I, I know uh, one, maybe our episode two, episode three, we talked about a poll that I had seen and read about that talked about the first and second choice. So they said, who's your first choice? And they said, you know, somebody would say, it's Biden. Who's your second choice? Sanders. So that poll was rerun recently. Yeah. And it was very similar numbers. First choice, you know, people whose first choice was Biden, second choice was Sanders. Uh, first choice was Sanders, second choice was Biden. But the people whose first choice was Sanders went way down. 
Yeah. And it seemed like those people went over to Warren, which is another really interesting data point. Again, we're seven months from the first primary. Right. Anybody listening to this podcast will hear this again. But, you know, I think it's interesting that lanes are starting to form, it seems. Um, and I had speculated at the beginning that it was like, well, somebody's like, I would kind of like an old white guy to challenge an old white guy. And those people are still there, but there may be more policy-oriented folks who are saying. Well, I think it comes down to, like, they, wanna, they, they need a sense that somebody else is going to is going to have that fight that they need to win that. And so, you know, Harris's debate performance helped her. Uh, Warren had a good debate performance and also has had a pretty good reputation on, you know, in her stump speeches and things like that. And so, you know, and I saw her, when I saw her at Netroots, like she was just full of energy. Like I swear she was more full of energy than I've seen her. Because she's gone to Netroots several times. Like I feel like she was oh, the really? most fired up as she's ever been. It's, it was impressive. Um, so we'll see. I, and I only want to say one more thing about the circus. Yeah. Bill de Blasio raised less than $2 million. He's from New York. There are a million millionaires in New York City. Right. Let's let that sink in. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, man. Hey, they're, they're all maxed out to the, the mayor of in, from a little town in Indiana. So, you know. They can't do it. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know, but I, I, I look at that, and, and I think if you're Bill de Blasio, you kind of got to think, maybe that's telling. Like, yeah, I, I, I think we're going to see. I mean, a lot of them just aren't going to hit that 130,000 donor threshold. No. None of them are hitting that polling. Th like, I don't remember what the polling threshold is for the second debate. Three. Three, three, yeah. So, you know. Almost none of those people below that top five are going to hit that mark. No. So, no, it's going to be in the the amount of difference between the first round of debates, those four nights, and the second are going to be pretty so much stark. Better. <laughs> like watching two nights of ten people in debates is like exhausting. Watching one night with six people where they can actually have a few minutes and they're not trying to interrupt each other the whole time. That is something worth watching. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. So I, I got to tell you, I need to talk about beer. I think we need to talk about beer. I, and we're here at the Half Acre Tap Room. So we've been at Half Acre before uh, up, up on Belmora. They've got two locations, the sort of original one in Lincoln Square, 47th Ward, your ward. Yes. Uh, are they both 47? Yeah, maybe. I know this one is. I'm not yeah. sure about the other one. So I've been here. I've uh, no, been no, to the no, brewery. it's not. No, the other one isn't. Yeah, 39 probably. Anyway. Yes. Um, so <laughs> let's say not 47. So on Lincoln Ave, I remember when this place opened. Have loved it since it opened. The brewery is right next door. The place where you can get up on a Saturday morning, get in line for a br free brewery tour, I've been going to this place so long that one time I wandered by here at around like 11-something on a Saturday just to go pick up some beer, and they were just like, oh, hey, we're going to start a tour. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I didn't even – there was no line. It was just like I just wandered in and went on the tour. Like, okay, I mean, cool. If you haven't done the Half Acre Tour, you're not like a North Side beer person. Yes. Like, because it's fantastic. It's free. It is the kind of thing where you like on your Google Calendar, you're like – 
oh, yeah, Half Acre Beer Tour, and then just drag that all the way down until sleep at whatever time that happens, somewhere between 4 and 10 p.m., I right, suspect. Right, right. Uh, because they're really friendly. They love everybody who comes out. They're part of the community here. They're next to a bar called the Wild Goose, which has always been a thing that has hurt me in terms of remembering. I'm like, yeah, it's uh, Goose Island. No, no, Goose. it's the Wild Goose. It's just a different. No, no, we're going to Half Acre. It's fantastic. Yes, yes. Uh, So what are you drinking? I've got uh, the Space IPA. And I will say that the Space IPA is in my top five beers. Really? All right. Of all time. It's fantastic. I just, I, I just love it. It's Citra Hops. Uh, they make a deep space, which is a double IPA. Uh, I, I know better than to have the double IPA while we're recording the podcast. For sure. But really, really good. And what do you, what have you got? That's uh, in a kind of a I've got a the wine Amaro glass, Hut, and it's served in yeah, it's served in a really cool like wine glass that says Half Acre Beer on it. Um, and it's kind of like there's like a little bit of a sour note in it. Uh, it's got a lot of um, the same herbs you'd have in an Amaro, so it's kind of like imagine like a Negroni or a um, a Boulevardier. Oh, like all right. like that as a beer. Oh, that's interesting. It's it's really good. Like it's a little lighter than than those, yeah, but it really works well. Yeah, and I I've got to say that like their whole lineup here is always good. It changes all the time. You can get growlers, and I think when I ordered my first beer. They asked me, like, what size I wanted, and there were, like, four different options. It's like being at Starbucks. Right. Um, which is good. You, so you, if you, you went, went with the Trenti. And yeah. <laughs> Look, if I can wear it on my back, that's the size of beer I want. Uh, absolutely. absolutely. Um, Very and reasonable. I, I, you know, I look at their lineup here today, and it's some old favorites like, you know, Daisy Cutter and Viejo and uh, Pony. But... You know, also some different things that you can only get here. So yeah. severe weather. Yeah, I really like the Volo last time. We were, yeah. We were, uh, yeah, severe weather seems appropriate to the clouds rolling by. But honestly, now that they have food here and it's table service, I've seen this place evolve. And actually, I'll, I'll say that when we came in, I didn't realize it was table service. And I didn't realize they had, like, sort of food on prem. Because every time I've been in here, they like. They have really good food here. Yeah. The food is really good. Science cheese. Two words for yes, you. we had a tray of nachos earlier, and it was like, oh, we'll get just you know, have a few nachos. And it was just like, you know, five minutes later, like we're like bathed in science cheese. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm thinking so about good. ordering a tray of science cheese. Yes. And a straw. Yes. I don't know what the hell science cheese is, but it was delicious. Whatever Come by it is. and try it. So we're right on Lincoln. It's just south of Cullum. Right so across from the Jewels. Yeah, right across from the Jewels, next to the brewery. Really highly recommended. So thanks for hanging with us, uh, talking about national, talking about international, talking about the circus. and uh, Yeah, and uh, make sure to rate us on iTunes. That would be awesome. Or, yeah. you know, hey, hit us up on Facebook. We've got a website, draftpolitics.com. Hey, do we have the Twitters? We even have a Twitter. I love the Twitters. I, I'll, I'll admit I don't really look at Twitter that much, but we do announce our podcast there so you can see that. Could you there. imagine right now if we had, like, 30 DMs on Twitter. Right. Like somebody just be like, I've been trying to get a hold of you guys. Yeah, maybe maybe the president's uh, social media conference, they were trying right, to get us there. Right, exactly. Since they didn't invite Twitter or Facebook at all. We, we could have gotten that interview with Buttigieg, but alas, we did not check our DMs. Well, we're going to go ahead and do that right now, and we'll catch you next time. All right. Take care, everybody. Politics. Thanks, everybody.